Okay, if you have your Bibles, John chapter 4. We have a lot of people here who probably don't know what's going on, so I'll try to get everyone caught up. For our podcast, we do something called a Bible study exercise. And the way we do the Bible study exercise is I don't necessarily give people the answers because I don't like that. I like to get people to actually study the text for themselves. So every week, uh, well, usually they, they kind of go in seven-week segments. And usually for seven weeks, we have a specific idea, concept, book, chapter, or something that we're working on. A lot of times I give people uh, like some kind of big assignment, maybe to do a word study or a thematic method or a topical method or a chapter, uh, an, an chapter analysis or a chapter summary method, different methods to do. People will send me their, their homework, their, their, their completed assignments, and we kind of work through the text or the issue or the topic together. For this, for the, probably the next seven weeks, we're ch- looking at individual chapters in the Gospel of John. There's kind of an overarching theme, but I don't really care about the overarching theme. We have a curriculum that we make available to everyone online that they can, they can look at. But the curriculum really kind of supplements what we do because I kind of do my own thing. I don't ever really follow the curriculum, but it's there. And what I tend to focus on is just trying to get people, what I always say on the podcast, is to get people off the couch but to get, you know, actually to a table with some reference tools and to actually study the text for themselves, working through all of the difficulties and the issues that we find in every text in the Bible and try to figure out what it says by the words that are used to actually become students of the Scripture. So for this last week, we've been in John chapter 4. We spent a little bit of time on that chapter last Sunday, and we're going to try to finish it up this Sunday. We've asked a lot of questions about the text because there's a lot of issues within the text. And so that's what we're going to be working on a little bit this morning. But we'll be still utilizing kind of that method, which some people aren't so used to. Because most people are used to within Christianity, they listen to a podcast or a sermon. And you know how I feel about the whole sermon structure. People just want to be told, hey, here's the text. Here's your three points. Now get out of here at noon. And I hate that entire system. I hate it with every ounce of my being. I believe sermons tend to get in the way of the text. People, the sermon actually, you know, the text is back here and the sermon stands in between you and the text. And what it does is it imposes ideas on the text. The pastor needs a sermon, right? So he's got to come up with three points. He's got to come up with three, you know, three ideas. And he gives you those ideas in a way that you think you're studying the text, but the reality is you never actually study the text. You got the pastor's sermon. You didn't actually see the text. And the way to know that is a lot of times after a person has heard a sermon on a text is just talk to them and ask them questions about the actual text. And they won't like, they'll just give you the three points from the Sermon, that wasn't the text. So I am trying everything in my power to, do, to burn the entire sermon structure to the ground to have us actually dig into the text. But I knew there would be lots of people here who are not used to that. So for their own comfort, not to have anyone psychologically scarred, I will try to do it a little bit more like a sermon. Maybe. Even though I don't want to. Okay, but I, I will try. But that, that's what we try to do with the Bible study exercise podcast series, and I'm glad for all the people online who participate because we're trying to do something radically different, radically different, because uh, I think there's such a major issue with people actually studying the text. Everybody just wants a simple answer, and if you actually have ever studied the Bible, there's nothing simple about it. If there was, it wouldn't be 2,000 years of what? Disagreement on every word. So we have to work on the text. So everybody ready? John chapter 4. Now before we get to the text, we're gonna, I'm going to do this in a more traditional way with a sermon introduction. Is that, is that great? Do you, yeah, do you feel okay with that? All right, we'll see. Hopefully it will make sense. All right, here we go. The year is 2014. A study is published in the magazine Science. Participants were asked to sit in a room and think for 15 minutes straight. That's just sit in an empty room, just think for 15 minutes straight. Inside this otherwise empty room was a device that allowed participants to electrocute themselves mildly. 
Right? So empty room. All you can do, just sit there, just think for 15 minutes. That's all you got to do. Right? The room's empty, but there's a device that you can press the button and get electrocuted. Right? Anybody want to participate in this? Okay. All right. Sounds good. Now, asked beforehand, every single person in the study said they would pay money to avoid being shot. Every other, every person before they go in, like, wait, that thing can electrocute. Look, I'll give you money. Just don't shock me. Just don't shock me. Hey, that makes sense, right? They, they have a desire. What's their desire at this point when they think about it? All they desire is what? Not to be shocked. Just keep that word desire there. It will, it will make sense in a minute, right? They don't want to be shocked. But guess what happens? When they were left alone in the room with the machine and nothing else to do, 67% of the men started shocking themselves. Because they were bored. Or they didn't like being alone with their thoughts. They were like, this is too complicated. I don't know what to do. These are thoughts. I don't know what to say. I just want to go, I don't know what to do. They start shocking themselves. Now, women don't get too excited, but 25% of the women started shocking themselves, and not just once, multiple times. I wonder why. As one person noted, the studies seem to demonstrate that people don't love being alone with their thoughts and will go to great lengths to avoid them, even if that activity causes them literal harm. But the point is, sitting in a room, nothing hurting you, nothing harming you, 15 minutes is all it takes for something you need something, right? You, you can't, you're not. In other words, it demonstrates that within 15 minutes, any sense of contentment goes away. Because you think you could be content for 15 minutes, right? 15 minutes, no one's hurting me, no one's harming me. No horrible climate situation where I'm freezing or burning. You think you could be happy for 15 minutes, right? But in 15 minutes, they're like, oh, I got I to electrocute myself. I can't take this any longer. I got, this is horrible. This is horrible. This is horrible. All right, now I want you to write down the following words and phrases, okay? Now, if you've heard the podcast, we talked a little bit about this this week, but I'm going to change it up a little bit, all right? Everybody ready? First word I want you to write down is the word desire. Desire. Or you can put slash longing. Desire and longing. Every person, that is a natural state of our life, is our life is lived with constant desires and longings, right? It can be basic stuff like food. It can be something more, something much larger for a perfect career, perfect this, perfect that. But we always have these desires, right? Longings. That is a perpetual state of our life, right? We live in a perpetual state of desiring and longing for something. Everyone in the world desires and longs for something, right? If I was to take, give everyone a piece of paper, and I asked everyone to do this on a podcast is to write down your five strongest desires you have at this moment and to be honest with yourself. To, I mean, you're in church. I know what you'll say. Well, to love Jesus and to tell the gospel. And, okay, just stop with your church answers, right? You know, I don't like church answers, right? But if you're honest with yourself, you have strong desires, do you not? Everybody should say? Yes. Okay, yes. All right, okay, good. All right. Or you don't have to say amen. That's a church answer. Just so you can say yes, right? We all have strong desires. Next. Partial satisfaction. Sometimes we find a partial satisfaction for said desire. Everybody likes that, right? Yes? Right? Now, that partial satisfaction usually leads to what? More desire because you want more satisfaction, right? Because partial satisfaction is not perfect. This leads to the third. So we have desire or longing, partial satisfaction, and we could go, we'll go with this phrase, complete satisfaction. Now, complete satisfaction is an illusion. It's a mirage. Because complete satisfaction lasts for about how long? Okay, how long? 
Okay, Mary, Mary is just quick. Like one second and I'm already, I'm already not happy again. Okay, right? right? She's like, and so you can say she is never satisfied. There you go. I say, I help him out, right? Okay, but that, that's true, right? When, whenever we experience complete satisfaction, it's not very long that we want either something else or we want more of it because that satisfaction lasts for how long? Doesn't last very long, all right? Now, guess what happens? After we get that complete satisfaction, guess what begins to, we move to this stage relatively, really quick. We move to a stage of dissatisfaction, a feeling of listlessness, dissatisfaction, this idea, a, a lack of, of excitement, like the thrill is gone, right? I felt it, but okay, well, you, you want more of it, but then you almost start feeling a sense of dissatisfaction begins to creep in. You're not happy. You're not content. You're not happy. You're not content. And this this can typically lead to the last one. Guess what? More longing, desire, and sometimes you will move on to a new desire or a new longing. You'll leave. You'll just say, you know what? I had that, tried that, now I'm going to move on to something else. This is the cycle of life. Constant desire, seeking satisfaction, getting a little bit of satisfaction, then finding yourself you're not content with that, and then you want something else, and it's just on and 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 on. And everyone should be able to acknowledge that. It should be, right? There's nothing, there's nothing big about that. There's nothing complicated about that. There's nothing revolutionary about that. That's just our life. Our life is in a perpetual state of desire, seeking satisfaction, finding ourselves dissatisfied or discontent, seeking more desire, more satisfaction, and we just go through this cycle forever. Forever. And it can lead to lots of serious issues and problems, can it not? It can lead to everything from complete discouragement Depression can even lead to suicidal thoughts because in many cases you're not happy, you're not satisfied, right? It can lead to despair, it can lead to frustration, it can lead to anger, it can lead to bitterness, it can lead to all kinds of emotional issues. And we all are very aware of this. But that's the reality. Now this reality should lead to the following questions. And I have four. Right? Number one, I think this is a question, why are we so dissatisfied all the time? Why are we in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction? Because we're in a way, we're in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction because we're always wanting something else or or needing something, right? I'm not saying dissatisfaction maybe in a major way, but there's always some level of dissatisfaction in your life. It just seems to never go away. Why is that? Why do you think that is? I mean, you don't have to answer right now, but why do you think that is? I think there may be a theological reason, but we'll, we'll look at it. Number two, where can we look to find satisfaction? Where can we look to find the satisfaction? Can complete satisfaction even be found, if you want to add another question, but there we go. Where, where, where can we look to find satisfaction? Here's the third question. How satisfied can you truly expect to ever be in your life? How satisfied do you think you can truly be in your life? Now, you always think, if I can just get this, right? If I can just get this, I'm going to be so satisfied. And then you get it. And not long after, what happens? Satisfaction goes away. The excitement goes away. Right? And then you start looking for something else. And then number four, now this is very important. What do you think the connection is between satisfaction, dissatisfaction, and idolatry? Now, now it's getting a little bit more spiritual all of a sudden, right? Now we're because we're kind of just dealing with kind of basic human psychology. Now we're going to move into a more theological realm. All right, what is the connection between satisfaction, dissatisfaction, and idolatry? 
Now, that brings us to John chapter 4. And you may not have any idea how any of this fits John chapter 4. And I'm going to have to do a lot of review quick for us to get to where we want to go to today. All right? Because, you know, I want to go home before 6 o'clock tonight. So I'm going to try to move quickly. All right? Here we go. John chapter 4. Let's start in verse 1. We covered a lot of this last week. Let's just work our way through the text. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Let's stop right here. What's the significance of this verse from a very practical way? The Pharisees are seeing that Jesus is growing in popularity. And typically when the Pharisees see this, what's typically the the end result of this kind of thing? Conflict arises, right? The Pharisees don't like that. The Pharisees are concerned because they're going to see this new teacher is gaining all of this popularity and they're going to have to figure out what's going on. When when John was baptizing people, didn't the Pharisees come to see what was going on? Right, Because they're the religious leaders. So who's this new guy with everyone's going following him? There's going to be an issue. There's going to be a conflict. And what happens many times when Jesus finds himself in conflict with the Pharisees? What does he have a tendency to do? He leaves. He moves away from the situation. And why does he move away from the situation? Because he knows sooner or later, the Pharisees are going to want to kill him, but there's a specific time for that to occur. So he, in many cases, avoids the conflict to, for that not to happen until the correct time. And so what do we see? We see this situation developing. And what happens in the very next verse? Well, we, we just get a kind of a parenthesis, making sure we understand Jesus wasn't baptizing anyone but his disciples. But so that's kind of just a parenthesis there. We can just kind of leave that to the side. And then what happens in verse 3? He leaves Judea and departs again into Galilee. He immediately does what? He leaves. He leaves. Because he's avoiding the conflict. Then we have the famous next verse that is... Ugh, Oh, can't stand the next verse because of the way it's always preached. What does the next verse say? He must needs go through Samaria. And how does every preacher preach that sermon? He must needs to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with a woman at a well. Right? And so we preach it that, hey, we sometimes must needs go through Samaria so that we can witness or we can evangelize. And, we, and, and right there, it turns into a sermon, not actually dealing with the text. The, good, the main reason he probably went through Samaria was probably to get away from whom? The Pharisees, because what did he know about the Pharisees? They're not going to go through Samaria. They would always go around Samaria. The, the direct route would go right through Samaria. But the Pharisees would be like, 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 you know, you're walking, you're following, the Pharisees are following you, and you walk into Samaria, and they're like, well, we can't go there. And so that would avoid what? Any conflict. But that we can't preach it that way, right? Because we got to over-spiritualize everything, right? So we got to preach it like, oh, he must needs to go through for this reason. Look, every, if you think about it, every place Jesus went, he must needs go there because he's following the will of the Father. He's, he's obviously, everything that occurs is according to God's sovereign decree and plan. So the fact that everybody reads that like, oh, this is a unique situation. It's not... He's just leaving the whom? The Pharisees. He's getting away from them. Now, is something important going to happen? Yes, he's going to have an interaction with someone here. But I I think that we so, we want to sometimes take text of scripture and so spiritualize them. and 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 the fault is the pulpit because you've got to have a sermon. So if I'm going to preach this, right there's a sermon, right? I just say he must needs, and then I just turn it into three points of the places you must needs go and who you must witness to. And then you're like, wow, that was a touching sermon. But it kept you from what? You never actually got to the text. Does that make sense? All right, so he must needs go through. Now, what was the issue with Samaria? We worked on it a little bit last week. It was a blend, Right? There was, uh, there was uh, the Jews were marrying with the Assyrians and just became basically, they were not viewed as true Jews, right? They, they were viewed as corrupt, unclean. 
So the Jews viewed the Samaritans as unclean, corrupt. We're not going to have anything to do with them. We're pure Jews. They've intermarried with the Assyrians and with other people. We're not going to have anything to do with them. And so there is a conflict, very kind of a racial conflict going on here. All right? They're looking down upon them. So Jesus goes to that area knowing that the Pharisees will not fall. Some Jews would go through there, but some would not get anywhere near it. They would go way out of their way. They wouldn't even walk through it, much less talk to anybody. They're not even going to talk to them. All right, so far so good. All right, then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sakar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Now, that's pretty important, right? Jacob's well. And we talked about Jacob's well. You can go see it today. It's, it's inside a church, right? We've talked about the historical background. But it's pretty significant because Jacob is considered pretty significant to those at that time, right? Especially anyone who was connected to Judaism, right? Why, why was Jacob important? Do what? Yeah, Jacob is Israel, right? Okay, there, there's really Israel, right? He has some sons, and they become the tribes of, yeah, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So he is significant. He's significant to them spiritually. And what else could he be significant to them as? Their racial identity. So this may be significant from a spiritual standpoint, from an identity standpoint, from a racial standpoint. There's a lot of issues going on here with this, the fact that it's Jacob's well. And the text makes sure we understand that it's Jacob's well, does it not? Like, the writer here is not just saying, hey, he just stopped at a well. So the, the, the writer wants us to know which well it was. It's Jacob's well. There's significance to this. So far, so good? They're pretty simple. You don't even need my help, right? Okay. Now, and if look at verse 6 to... Str- to Stress this, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, and there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. We talked about her name. Everybody remember her name in church, uh, church history? Votini, right? Votini. Uh, last week was her feast day in the Greek Orthodox Church. We don't know if that's truly her name, but that's what she's referred to as Votini, right? And so... She, she, and, and according to tradition, what happens to her? Her and her family get baptized, they get saved, and then Nero, she gets persecuted under Nero. She won't renounce her faith in Christ, and she is thrown down a well to kill her. Now, we don't know if that's true, but if it is true, it's a beautiful picture, because she meets Jesus at a well, and she dies for Jesus in a well. But we don't know if that's 100% true, but it is Uh, a little bit of church history. So we covered a little bit of that last week. So far, so good. All right. Now we talked about why the sixth hour, she comes at what time? In the middle of the day. And it seems weird. Why would she come in the middle of the day? Because that, you know, nobody wants to come trying to get water for everyone in the middle of the day when it's hot, right? You would want to come early in the morning or maybe late in the evening. But she, and not only does she come in the sixth hour, she comes alone. And many think the reason she comes alone is because, well, she's the talk of the town. She's scandalous. And so she's kind of an outcast. The other women don't want it, like, I'm getting water with her. I mean, don't you know who she is, right? You know, probably good Christians, right, talking about, okay, right? They, they, they probably, she's an outcast. At least there's a lot of thinking of that. There, there's some things in the text that may call that into question, but clearly she comes by herself in the middle of the day, which at least seems somewhat odd. And the text wants us to know exactly when she comes, right? So the text is obviously thinks it's important, right? So she comes alone, all right? And then Jesus is there, and his disciples are gone away. See that in verse 8? Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, because he asked her to give him something to drink. And she's like, how is it that thou, being a Jew, ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Clearly, hey, you, we shouldn't be talking. So we've got all of that down. We've worked through all of that. All right, now here we go. This is verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep from whence thou hast thou 
living water. In other words, she doesn't understand, wait a minute, you don't have anything to draw with, so how are you going to get the living water? She's thinking the living water is where? Like, in the well, like, wait, where is this living water? Wait, how are you going to get the living water? Where, where is it coming from? She doesn't understand it because she's thinking in what way? A very physical or literal way, right? Jesus is usually, obviously using something else. And now look, note what she says in verse 12. Are thou greater than our father Jacob, please note, which gave us the well and drank therefore himself and his children and his cattle. Now, she, so she has mentioned the kind of racial divide between her and the Jews, right? She's clearly mentioned now Jacob's well and Jacob. Just, just focus on these things that she's mentioning, right? And then look at what Jesus says in verse 13. You ready? Jesus answered and said unto her, whoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Now it fits all back with how we started. Whoever drinks of this water, what's going to happen? They're going to be thirsty again. They're going to be thirsty again. They can drink and they can drink and they can drink and they can drink and they can drink. But no matter how much you drink, will you get some kind of satisfaction? Yes. It may even be a complete satisfaction, but for only a little bit of time. And then you're going to need more of it, 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 more of it. Now, Jesus and her are having a talk about physical water. But this goes obviously way beyond physical water because Jesus has already mentioned a living water, which obviously is not a physical water. So there's something more going on in the text, but it brings us right into conflict with this entire, this entire discussion. And I'll try to at least lay this out, and I'm going to try to show you what is happening here in the text. So let, we can state it this way. Everyone in this room, we all have a problem, and that's because we're all thirsty. We all have a desire. Everyone knows that. We all have these desires. We are born this way. We are all born with these desires. Now, the question is, those desires that we have, and we have plenty of them, right? Are those desires, because as human beings, we know we're going to have these desires, but here's the question. Most of your desires, are they physical or are they really spiritual? It's the real issue that we all desire something spiritual, but we don't have that because we are born spiritually Dead, so there is no satisfaction, so that desire manifests itself in desiring hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other things because we don't have what we really need, which is the spiritual, not the physical. I'm, I'm throwing it out as a question. I'm not stating it dogmatically, all right? I'm asking you. We're, we're all thirsty for something, and we're thirsty for something more than we seem to ever be able to find available in this world. Because we're always looking for it, right? We're in a perpetual state for it, looking for it constantly. We're always looking for something more satisfying, something more gratifying, something more pleasurable, refreshing and rewarding, something that can fill the nagging void in our hearts, something that can bring peace to our unsettled souls, something transcendent, something heavenly. We're thirsty for something, but we can't ever seem to find it. Nothing around us can quench this thirst. Our world just can't, it can't help us. It's just, it's not there. And if you think about our lives, we get a job, we think, oh, we're going to be happy, and then what do we find about our jobs? It's stressful, or it doesn't go the way we want, or we have bad days, or, and then it, sometimes it's unfulfilling. We want a relationship, and we get the relationship, and then what do we find in the relationship? It's quarrelsome, it's problems, it's, it's unsatisfying. Over, I mean, just we go on and on and on. We find ourselves nervous, afraid, angry, upset. Life all around us, there is pain, there's disease, there's suffering. We live in a world that's never, never truly satisfied. Over and over, we have all of these things that are constantly going on. And guess what? We never seem to find it. We never seem to find what we're looking for. Or to quote the famous U2 song, we, I still haven't found what I'm looking for because you can't find it. We look and 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 we look. So here is what I want you to consider. If you have a piece of paper, you can, try, you can just 
try to put this down. We look for satisfaction in one of two places. There's only two places to look for it. We look for it in the physical, material world, or we look for it in the spiritual. And we try to find some satisfaction for it. Now, let's look at this woman really quick. Let's look at this woman, and let's look at the places where she's possibly tried to find a little bit of satisfaction or contentment and to fulfill some of these desires. Let's try to look at just some of the place, things that she may be looking at because you know, she at least mentions them, right? right? First of all, she clearly thinks Jacob's well is significant, is it not? Right? Because she mentions... In fact, when Jesus talks about this water, what does, he, what does she say to him? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well? I mean, who are you? You can't be greater than Jacob. There's that, now, that Jacob is connected to a lot of things. But in, so in a roundabout way, she could be trying to look for something spiritual to fulfill, right? So she could be looking for something spiritual to fulfill her because she's mentioning Jacob and there would have been a spiritual connection to it. So maybe sometimes people do look to the spiritual world to try to find fulfillment. Do they not? Yes. But when it comes to the spiritual world, there's only two options in the spiritual world, right? Something that's true spiritually or something that is false spiritually. But some people will look to something spiritual. There's a lot of people in our culture that... They know they need something more, more than what they can see, touch, and feel. They need something transcendent, so they will look to something spiritual. And sometimes they're looking for a spiritual experience. And they will try to find satisfaction in that experience, but they have to keep looking for another experience, and another experience, and another experience, and another experience. And many churches are designed to give people the experience that people think that will make them satisfied, but they're being satisfied by a spiritual experience, not, well, we'll see, we'll see what the real answer is. I think we know, but we can see that. All right, what else does she kind of mention? She mentions that she's a Samaritan, does she not? Right, what does she say right here in verse 9? I'm a woman of Samaria, you are a Jew who have no dealings with a... Samaritans. She clearly knows her, her heritage or her identity, right? Her racial identity, her heritage. A lot of people look for some kind of meaning in that. There's entire platforms designed to help people find your heritage and your roots, right? Ancestry.com, right? Because somehow it's going to make you happy in 2023 what great, 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 great grandpa did in 1800s, right? Because it gives you some sense of purpose or meaning, some connection, right? I mean, a lot of people are into that. If you're into that, that's okay. I could care less. I don't care what anybody did in 1800. Who cares? 1500, I don't care. Who cares? But for some people, they, they want the whole thing mapped out, right? And they want photographs and they want documents and they're like, there's my family. Well, congratulations, great. That's wonderful. I mean, if you like that, that's great. But I don't know if it's going to give you the satisfaction you want, Right? Don't know if you're going to give the satisfaction one. What else do you think she has looked for to find happiness or peace or satisfaction? We didn't get to it, but I think we're going to know what happens because they have this back and forth, right? She decides she wants this water. And what does Jesus tell her to do in verse 16? Hey, go get your husband. And the woman said, wait a minute, uh, I have no husband. And Jesus is, what does he say down to her? You, you said very well, you, you definitely don't have a husband. Verse 18, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that saidest thou truly. Now, just make sure we understand, a lot of people read this going, whoa, she's been divorced five times. We don't know if she's been divorced. It doesn't say that, right? Her husbands could have all died. But that is a, we can see this as a possible, where you could probably say, since she's been through five husbands, that she probably looked for some kind of hope or happiness or satisfaction where? And those relationships. And that's a normal way we look for, for, for it, right? We can look to the spiritual. Sometimes it's a false spirituality. We can look to it. All the rest of this is very physical, right? Her ancestry, her family connection. We could call it family. I'm a Samaritan. Some people try to find satisfaction in family. Sometimes you can find a lot of satisfaction there. To some of us, no, 
not so much, okay? We won't go through all that, right? So, so, so some we'll try to find there. Some in relationships. We could call it romance. We could call it love. Try, tries to find that satisfaction. We look for all of those things. Yes? Well, where, where else do, do you think she looks? Do you think there's anywhere else she looks? Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem, and the place where man ought to worship. Remember the Samaritans had a different place. They built a temple. Remember that mountain? What was it? Gerizim, right? Everybody remember that? Yeah, remember we talked about it last week? They had a separate mountain with a separate temple. And the Samaritans went there, and the Jews, their temple was in Jerusalem. So she now looks to this. So what we could argue, what is she looking to here? Because, I mean, she's, she's getting sidetracked from everything. What is she looking to here for possible satisfaction or fulfillment or contentment? Sometimes we just want to be right. Sometimes being right is better than anything else, right? I mean, right? I mean, all the women here know that, right? Always want to be right? All the women got really quiet. It's true, right? Sometimes being right is more important than anything else. We look for lots of things. We look for lots of things, but when it was all said and done, what does Jesus say to her? Go back to John 4. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Hey, this water. Now the water, he's looking at the physical water, and what I'm trying to do is show that there's a lot of things mentioned here that people cling to to try to find that satisfaction. And you can drink all day from it, but you're going to thirst again. You're still going to have that desire. So what we really have to try to figure out, and I, I want to still do more work on the text, but I'm going to run out of time, so i got to try to make sure we get something here, so let's just stay with me, all right? So let's try our best to figure this out. Here's the real ultimate question we need to figure out. First of all, what are we truly desiring for? What are we really desiring for? What is our real want, our real need? If you wrote down your five desires, I would question if that's really what you want and really what you desire. Right? Sometimes you get, if you're a parent, do you ever get frustrated with the kids? What do you want? And sometimes they'll say, I don't know. Well, then go away. I can't help you. What are, you, what are you bothering me for? And they're like, I, I don't know what to do. Well, I don't know what to do. Okay, go away. But we're a lot like that, right? So what, is, what are we really, really, really desiring? What are we really, really, really desiring? That's the question. Because I think we spend all of our lives trying to figure out why we desire these things. Why we're not satisfied. Now, some would say dissatisfaction is an evolutionary concept. The reason we are dissatisfied is because you can't move the species forward if everyone is satisfied. Right? That's an evolutionary explanation. Right? You're dissatisfied because it's a part of evolution. If you're not dissatisfied, you're just going to sit down and do what? Nothing, so therefore there won't, evolution will not proceed and then the species dies off and it's the end. Right? That's an evolutionary explanation. Obviously, I believe that there's something more going on than the evolutionary idea, right? Because then, so what? Dissatisfaction evolved, and it leads to all kinds of questions, right? I think, and I'm just going to throw this out there, and I know I'm going to, very, going to be very Augustinian here, but I think this is the only way to look at this. There's something wrong with all of us. And that we are broken and disconnected from our Creator. And that being broken away from our creator leads to, in other words, dissatisfaction is really a symptom of the deeper problem. We're never happy, we're never content because we're disconnected from our creator. And so we try to go, in a sense, again, I'm always quoting from music, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. Right? We're looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. We think this is, 
my family is going to be satisfying. Well, some, maybe, maybe you have a great family and wonderful. But even in great families, it's never truly satisfying, is it? Oh, come on. Okay, I mean, maybe all of you have great families, but come on, even the best, all right? Maybe it's your identity, whoever you think you are. And, and identity is a big issue in 2023, right? It's a big deal, and we should take it serious, and it's, it's a serious thing. But some people, their identity is more important. That They think they're going to find satisfaction and being able to say, this is my identity, you recognize my identity, and I'm going to be happy. But that's still not going to satisfy. I still want to be respectful of whatever their identity is and not in any way saying not to be, but I just feel bad that they think that that's, that's going to that's gonna give them what they're looking for. No, it's not. You can use whatever pronoun you want. It's not going to fix what you're looking for. Does that make sense? We, we, we're, we're, we're constantly looking, and the problem is, is because we're broken from our creator. If we're, think about it this way. If we're created by God for God, then everything else is simply a substitute for God. Remember one of the questions I asked about the connection between idolatry? What's the definition for idolatry? Anything we put in the place of God. Guess what we put in the place of God every single day? All of these things that we seek satisfaction from. They become our idol. Because we are seeking from it what only we should be able to find in God. Jesus is saying everything you're looking for in this water, it, you're going to thirst again. He's using it in a very literal way, but clearly there's something more spiritual going on. That's not me reading into the text because Jesus wants her to focus on living water. Clearly that's not physical water. She even knows, well, wait a minute, how are you going to get the living water? And he's, he's going to ultimately explain how you get the living water, Right? So I want you to see that I think our, our desires are symptoms of our problem, which is a disconnect with our creator. So therefore, we desire and we desire and we desire. And we desire, we find satisfaction, but we thirst again over and over and over. And we're never happy and we're never content. Because that's because we're broke. That's the problem. That's the problem with all of the world is we're, we have a broken relationship with our creator. If we're created by God for God, then our only hope is in God. Our only purpose is in Him. What does the catechism say? What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We forget that enjoy part. We focus on the glorify part, but enjoy Him, that's where the satisfaction it should be found. It should be. Now, this is still going to raise a million philosophical questions, but we get, we get this. That, I think that's where the problem is. I think my desire reflects my brokenness with God. And, and, and so there's, there's, I think, one source of our dissatisfaction is our broken relationship with God. Here's another source for our dissatisfaction. Where do you think it comes from? Well, now, depending on your theology, but for us here, we obviously believe in that we are sinners, not because we sin but because we are sinners by nature, right? Our actions are the result of our nature. We are sinners by nature, and that sinful nature will never be satisfied. The sinful nature will not find its satisfaction in God because it doesn't want God, but it will never be satisfied because everything it's trying to find satisfaction in can't satisfy. The sinful nature is a... It's like the cookie monster. It can never get enough cookies. Right? It's like, it's like a bottomless pit that no matter how much you throw in it, it wants more of it. So because of our brokenness with God and because of our sinful nature, we're always in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction, which then turns into idolatry. Because then we start basically putting these things before God, trying to find satisfaction in everything other than in God. Does that make sense? 
That is our problem. Our problem is we're broken with, from God and we have a sinful nature. So this will lead us into a perpetual state of dissatisfaction, which places us in a perpetual state of idolatry, which is where we all find ourselves every single day because we're looking for all of these other things. Does that make sense? Now, some people would say, no, 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 no. Those desires are, don't arise from that problem. They will try to pinpoint a different issue. But what, and so guess what our issue is? Sometimes what we try to do, so even sometimes within biblical counseling, is we try to find out what's causing the dissatisfaction, and we look to fix it, but that's not the real issue. The real issue is something deeper. So far, so good? All right, now. Oh, I can't really go into great detail here, but just go back to the text. John four thirteen. John four thirteen. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. We know that's the perpetual state of life, right? Okay. But, now Jesus throws in, but, in other words, set that aside. He's going to have something different. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And what does she say? Give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Hey, give me the water because I'm tired of being thirsty and I'm tired of doing what? Trying to find satisfaction. Now, they have a long conversation, but how can we summarize what this living water is? Now, the living water is typically attached to the Holy Spirit. That's typically how it's drawn in text, in the, in the context. But we'll just, just make sure we understand. If we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about salvation, right? Because when a person becomes saved, they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus is saying, anyone who drinks of this water, that's by faith, right? Obviously, he's not talking about drinking any physical water. We can all agree there, right? He's using a spiritual metaphor, and he's saying that basically whoever believes in me will now have access to the living water. Now, this is what we have to realize, because this raises all kinds of questions. Because if you're honest, what, what, what's the most obvious question you should have right here? If I say the answer is the living water, what should be the question everyone should ask? Forget, don't give me church answers, okay? What should you immediately go, well, wait a minute. Thank you, Bobby. Bobby's been here a long time. See, he knows how to ask the questions, right? Just question everything I say and you're always in the right place, right? Okay, because the question should be, well, wait a minute. If getting the living water is the answer to the problem, then why do even believers still struggle and long and not content and not happy? I know most sermons preach it that if you come to Jesus, you'll be content, you'll be satisfied because Jesus is all you want. Jesus is all you need. Let's sing a praise song and everybody goes home. And before you even get all the way to the house, you're already complaining and arguing with each other because somebody's not getting what they, even after you just said Jesus makes you happy and content. I don't know how people don't realize how foolish that makes us look. We can sing the praise songs. We can throw our hands in the air and say, oh, Jesus is all I need and Jesus is all I want. But five seconds after you leave, you clearly realize you still have wants and needs. So what's the disconnect? That's what I really want you to struggle with. You say, what's the answer? Well, I I don't know if there's a definitive answer. I know this. If our ultimate longing is really a right relationship with the Creator... Believing in Jesus puts us in right relationship with the Creator because now we're reconciled with the Father, right? So that takes care of that longing for salvation, for that spiritual. It's taken care of. But what do we still possess? A sinful nature. And what is the, Will the sinful nature ever be satisfied by a right relationship with the Creator? Never. Well, never, not even there, because when we get there, the sinful nature goes. So it will never be satisfied with it, right? Ever. So because we still have a perpetual sinful nature, we're going to always be in a perpetual state of desire and discontent. So what do we have to do? We've got to realize that we are being discontented because we're trying to satisfy our sinful nature. And we've got to ensure that we don't do What? Make those desire our idolatry. 
Because those things become our idols, do we not? We pursue it, we pursue it, we pursue it, we pursue it. Now, we're always going to be in a perpetual state of, we're never going to get this right. We've got to make sure we understand this. That's why Paul could say in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do because the sinful nature never goes away. It never goes away. So we're always going to be in this perpetual struggle. But what we have to remind ourselves is that no matter how many things I get in this world, I'm still never going to be fully happy because my sinful nature will never be fully happy. It will never be, no matter how much I want to satisfy it. No matter, because when you, at the moment of desire, what exists? At the moment of desire, God doesn't exist. Heaven, hell, all of it doesn't. Church, Jesus, it doesn't matter. All you see is at that moment, what you desire, what you want, and you're going to take to satisfy it. And then you're going to find yourself not very satisfied. Eve got the fruit. How did that turn out? How satisfied was she? Next thing you know, they're doing what? Hiding. Next thing they know, they're blaming. And the next thing you know, she's weeping because one son killed another. That that fruit turned out really well, didn't it? But we can't be so dogmatic and, and condemning of her. Are we not the same way? So we almost have to constantly stop ourselves and realize that this desire should point us to what we really truly should want, which is the spiritual. But we don't. That's why, that's why if you think about it, Jesus talks about this. Man does not live by bread alone. Now, that sounds so good. That preaches so good. But we all know what we want. What do we want more? Come on. When, as soon as church is over, what are you going to want? Food. Physical food. And what do you desire more every single day? Let's just be honest. Let's not play games. Physical food more than you do the word of God. You know that. You spend more time thinking about food, getting food, ordering food, wanting... Where's, where's the DoorDash guy? Come on, where are they at, right? You won't even spend time reading your Bible waiting for the DoorDash to show up, right? In fact, you're on your app going, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Right? Or where she is or whoever, right? Correct? We know that. We know that that's the the reality of our life. So Jesus then, that's where spiritual disciplines come in, right? Why Why do you think the Bible speaks of fasting? What are you doing with fasting? You're denying that desire for the physical. And not, and now I know some Christians say they're fasting. Look, if you're fasting to lose weight, that's not a spiritual fast. Everybody understand that? Okay. Oh, I've been fasting. I lost 30 pounds. Okay, never mind. You just missed the whole point. Okay, all right. You missed the whole point. It's to deny the physical so that you'll focus on the spiritual. And is that easy to do? Man, you you skip lunch. You're trying to study your Bible. And all you can be thinking about is, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. You're like, I'm going to use my Bible really quick to look up that. I'm going to use my iPad to look up that. Oh, there's DoorDash. Okay. I mean, the fast will be over in an hour. I should just go ahead and order it now, shouldn't I? Mm-hmm. Don't we all do that? It's the never, that's the never-ending struggle. Our, all of our struggles is because we have a sinful nature that desires something. At first, it starts because we have a broken relationship with the Creator. But once we get that relationship with the Creator, we still have the sinful nature. So we're always desiring the physical over the spiritual and sometimes we'll turn to spiritual listen this is very important spiritual counterfeits to give us some sense of satisfaction and that's where people get caught up in emotionalism and experiential christianity because that we we want an emotion now there's nothing wrong with an emotion but if you're looking to the emotion you're missing out on the truth of in, in christ because emotions can be manipulated right all you got to do is have stage lighting, get the praise band up there, turn the lights down, sing the chorus 17 times, and everyone does it a cappella, and you can create that feeling, and then everyone's, there's, there's emotions, and then guess what? It lasts for how long? Until you leave the door, and then guess what shows back up? The desire. Now, there's nothing wrong with experiencing the emotion. Make sure you understand the balance here, right? But you can't take the, you can turn the emotion into the idol trying to fulfill what's not really being filled by Jesus, but by an emotional 
an emotional experience including Jesus. That's not the same thing. Jesus tries to tell her, Here, here's what happened. And, and then I'll just end with this. Some people made a big deal out of this with the Bible study this week, and you can just see what you think about it. But I think it is significant. Okay, we'll end with this, because there's much more I want to talk about, but we don't have time. Go back to John 4. Look at verse 28. After she has this back and forth, right? Right? Uh, verse 27. And upon this came his disciples, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The disciples are coming up, like, What's going on here? Right? Why are they having this conversation with this? Why is he having a conversation with the Samaritan? They don't understand. But look what happens. Next verse. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the man, Come and see a man. Now, a lot of people. And, and the Bible study exercise this week made a big deal out of that. Like, what do we do with that? Is there, is there something significant about that? Now, some people want to really spiritualize this. Oh, this is a picture of repentance and all this stuff. I think that's crazy. But you have to look at it in the most literal way. That is kind of weird. She came there to get, and she did what? Left her water pots. Right? That's what she came there for. She came there for that. Now, so at the very least, in the most literal way, we could at least say this. At that moment, what what no longer mattered? The physical water. The physical water. Her focus was on the living water. Now, she's obviously going to come back and get it because obviously she's going to need it because we all are going, we all have to have food, we all have to have water. But I'm just saying in a kind of a very small way, she, she demonstrated that at that moment, she didn't care about the physical, she cared about the spiritual, and that's a perpetual state of our lives, trying to ensure that we care more about the spiritual than we do the physical, but sadly, over and over and over, all of the physical wants and desires become our idols, and we use them to supplement what we should be seeking from God. Now, I wish it was easy to say that if you come to Jesus, you'll be perfectly content and happy and you'll have everything you want. The reality is you're always going to struggle with all of these other desires. The problem is when these desires don't satisfy you and you're frustrated and you're not happy and you're discontent with life and you're mad about this and you want this and you want this and you want this and you want this, you you may realize that fixing every problem that you've ever had and fixing every situation you've ever been in, you're still going to find yourself very unhappy. If I go back to the way I was raised, it's not pretty stories, right? Tied up in a closet, burned with curling irons, beat with a baseball bat, crazy stuff, right? Horrible stuff. That's all over. So guess what? I should be. Happiest, most content person on the face of the earth, right? That's over. I made it. I lived. Tempted suicide, eight weeks in a psychiatric hospital, all the things I went through, I should be like, woo, man. I don't care if it's cold. I don't care if it's hot. I don't care if it's raining. I don't care what you, I don't care. But guess what I find myself doing? Complaining, grumbling, and not content. You would think, why would I not be content? still have a sinful nature who still has wants and desires and I constantly will look to the physical more than I will look to the spiritual. I wish the spiritual would make all of that go away. It never is because there's always that issue of wanting to do what? What do we want to worship? We talked about it in the last hour. I mean, for those who weren't here, they missed all the fun in the last hour, right? I mean, we, we read from the Satanic Bible. I mean, come on. That's worth the price of admission, Right? And what did we find about the Satanic Bible? We, Satanism is the worship of self, not the worship of the devil. Christians always saying that nonsense, okay? It's the worship of self. And we are all by nature Satanists who worship self, and self wants to be satisfied, yet self can never be satisfied apart from the Creator. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, so much we were not able to cover, 
but this gives us plenty to think about and meditate on. Help us think about our desires, our dissatisfaction, our unhappiness, and how it may ultimately point to you and forgive us for the idolatry where we've placed these things before you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.